Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Yo, so before we start today's episode, we have a very special sponsor. He's funny as fuck, and he's got a new special. So before we get into it, we're going to let him say a few words. Hey, what's up? It's Hannibal Burris. My new comedy special, Miami Nights, is available now at youtube.com slash Hannibal Burris. Maybe it's on my website, but those first two, but then it might be somewhere else. I might put it up, uh... Um, Voodoo might put it up uh, on a Scandinavian on-demand platforms. Might just try to get it on an independent Kenyan public access television just because, you know, mix it up a little bit. All right, check it out. Well, there you have it. You heard it from the man, the, the, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Hannibal Burr. So if you haven't already, be sure to go to Google, go to YouTube, go to internet provider of your choice, maybe that, that Kenyan independent news publisher or whatever, <laughs> or whatever floats your boat. Uh, but just search Hannibal Burr's Miami Nights. Uh, is this hilarious quality content. Want to make sure you're not missing out. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's episode. What's happening, Jordan? How you doing tonight, man? Chilling, man. What's up with you, boss? Not much. Uh, very, very excited uh, for this week's episode. I think uh, this is very organic how this week's episode came up. Dan, uh, Dan Runcy, founder of Trapital, somebody whose newsletter and, and whose content I've been reading and consuming for a while. I've always found it to be super valuable. I know he kind of came across the Music Business Podcast, so this episode it really came together in a very organic way. It, it all started, went down in the DMs, like like business tends to these days. But <laughs> I think uh, Dan, I mean, super smart, very analytical person. I think if you if you haven't already, definitely want to encourage you guys to check out Trapital.co. Um to, I mean, he kind of described it a bit as almost like he was, it's like the Harvard Business Review of Hip Hop. He puts out weekly newsletters, tons of really valuable content, has uh, various community offerings, but really does very kind of deep dives and analysis, deconstructing some of the success and tactics be- behind hip hop and behind some of the, the movers and shakers behind the scenes as well as artists in the, the industry. So I think we're always hungry for, for great resources and thoughtful, provocative analysis. And I think Dan does just that uh, and does it consistently and always at a very high quality. So I think it's uh, really want to encourage you to go to trapital.co to sign up for that newsletter. Um, in this episode specifically, I personally really enjoyed talking about a lot of the different macro trends in the industry. I think myself as somebody that works a lot in the kind of the digital media and marketing space, it was really interesting to, to speak about the this ongoing evolution of media and the, the influence of media and which kind of mediums have evolved to dominate in, in recent years. I think we speak about uh, at one point it was blogs. Right now, influencers are huge. Playlists make uh, are very critical. So uh, really just speaking to that evolution. Uh, also, really, we kind of spoke for, for one little segment of the show about like, when and if DSPs, uh, kind of like Spotify and Apple Music, will launch record labels, and why? Why not? Why haven't they? Obviously, they they have kind of the, the keys to the kingdom to to some extent. So, uh, really, just had lots of really fun kind of banter, and I think uh, Dan's just got tons of very very well informed and educated and and thoughtful analysis and breakdowns. So, what do you think, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I, I always love getting journalists and analysts on the podcast, whether it was Dan Runcy or, or Sherry Who, because we fought, we get to talk about the industry in a really fun way, which is just to kind of let our minds, uh, let our minds uh, go and just kind of talk about trends, you know. Um, and it's always great having these analysts on because they study the game, they study all of the things that you know you and I and our audience are interested in. So the fact that we got to talk to Dan about several things that we kind of just kind of got, uh, kind of got to go on a whim of, you know, kind of what interests us and actually got a, a perspective from somebody who studies the things that we brought up, I thought was super interesting. 
Um, for example, when we talked about hip hop culture and why hip hop culture is so relevant and how it influences pop culture and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, those type of things obviously are, are really important to discuss. And I'm glad that our listeners can discuss it. Um, we also go into, you know, what it's like just being a journalist, his favorite articles to write versus his favorite articles or favorite articles to write versus everyone else's favorite articles, I thought was a really interesting point. Um, and we also kind of talked about growing a business and, and discussing growing a subscriber base and what that entails. So I think people will really like it. So without any further ado, I think we got ourselves a great episode here. So let's just, just jump right into it. Let's do it. Dan, happy Friday, man. How are you today? I'm good, Sam. I'm good, man. How you doing? Can I complain? Very excited to have you on, man. We've been a long time reader, so it's a full circle moment here. Yeah, likewise. And I shoot, shoot, shot you guys to know it. I was like, hey, loving the podcast. Keep it up. It's good stuff. That's awesome, man. Well, really excited. I think you, you have tons of super valuable and unique perspectives. So really excited to kind of uh, peel back some of those curtains. When it comes to, can you just kind of lay the foundation of Trapital, how the idea came about, what it's evolved into, and ultimately too, like what's your why? What's the mission? What's the, the driving force behind it all? Yeah. Trapital's mission is to elevate hip hop. I had started this as a side project and I'd started it at the nexus of a few things. I saw that hip hop itself just wasn't necessarily having a steady beat that was talking about the business strategy and the principles on a regular basis. I mean, I had worked in several industries. I read several different reports and most of the strategic analyses we read, it would be focused on tech, focused on finance. And growing up a lifelong hip hop fan, there just wasn't a set home that was creating this level of content on a regular basis. And at the time I was um, doing freelance writing for several different publications, reputable ones, writing for Wired, writing for Pigeons and Planes, other places, Medium. But I never felt that even those pieces were necessarily making the type of impact that I wanted them to. So it was around the same time I started to see where media itself was shifting. There were a lot more indie publishers or people starting one, two, three person operations, leveraging all the tools on the internet to say, this is the home for this niche. And you can reach this target audience that's really passionate about it. And that's when things started to click. I started to think a bit more seriously about it. And in the spring of 2018, I had started a pilot. I said, okay, let me send this out to my network. I know some people in this industry based on the freelance writing I've done. I knew some people from my own job that I had and just my own network I built. Let me do this. And I was able to get a decent number of subscribers on the email list even before I had sent out the first article. And I was like, okay, there's some interest here. Sent wow. it out things slowly started to build and grow from there. And I saw that it was growing, but not just growing, it was growing with the, the right places. I started to get a few more executives from a lot of the companies and organizations that I was covering and writing about. So it confirmed a lot of what I felt. I was like, okay, there is an appetite for this. And it's on this wave of people getting back into email as a medium to deliver information and to deliver content and build an audience. So things slowly started to build from there. And I think from there was just a matter of timing. That next winter, I was able to get the bonus I had from my job. And that gave me the financial confidence to be able to go out full time and start <laughs> working on Trapital. And with that, was able to solidify the business model, think about how I also wanted to position this, how I wanted to better target the executives, the people that are in the business of hip hop industry, the people that are in the entertainment industry, and know that my main goals were to one, provide them with the type of resources and insights based on the topics that are relative and mm -hmm. focused on the things they're dealing with. So if we're going to break down what's happening with Rock Nation, let's give Rock Nation a strategic analysis and breakdown the same way that a tech crunch or the same way that uh, the information or one of those sources would do for Snapchat or would do for Instagram. And being able to do that on a regular basis attracted those folks. So I knew that it was providing value, but there was also a personal aspect of this that wanted to improve the representation because a lot of the people in hip hop, the black executives, they don't necessarily get the deep Harvard Business Review long 
write-ups or Mm -hmm. that type of deep discussion. So by having a home like that, that can be giving that same level of rigor to something that the folks that are leading quality control in Atlanta or the folks that are, you know, down in LA with TDE, being able to apply that same type of principle I knew would help elevate and help normalize the notion that yes, people that look like this are making these types of decisions. It's getting talked about this way. And I think to date, I've definitely been happy about the impact and the momentum, and I'm excited to keep growing it and see where it goes from here. That's so amazing, man. And I think it's definitely filling a very valuable void in the market. Um, and I think too, I mean, I just love the way you kind of uh, compared it to kind of like the, the Harvard Business Review or uh, kind of like the case studies and analysis of a lot of what's happening in the hip hop industry. I know that's kind of largely what drew me to it. And I think there's tons of world-class moves and businessmen and entrepreneurs that are, are making the industry go around. What do you think is... Um, like why? Why do you think there wasn't necessarily as much shine historically, and that there was kind of that that void? I mean, I know it seems like hip hop, even as an industry, over the last. I mean, what? What? Why do you think that void even existed in the first place? Yeah, I think it's two things, and they're related. And the first is that hip hop itself was just vying for its relevancy for so long. Even the notion of the way that we looked at that we look at hip hop business now is different than it was in 2015. It's different than it was in 2020. Not necessarily like how I look at it differently, but how the external world is kind of like, oh, wow, there's something here, right? So that notion is different. I think a lot of it has to do with people understanding that hip hop is not just a trend, like it is here. There's people that are seriously caring about it. And I think that as hip hop artists themselves started to just become more empowered, they started to become leaders both within the music industry, outside of the music industry. It forced the hand of you know the rest of the businesses to be able to say, okay, there is something here. And once there were specific indicators, like a few years back, once hip hop had surpassed rock and roll as the most mm-hmm. listened to genre of music, there was no more arguing that could be done about this. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing that's uh, related to this, that's tied with it as well is race. A lot of hip hop artists and a lot of the hip hop executives themselves are black folks. And you if you look at the black folks that are in corporate America or Fortune 500, even they themselves don't get the same level of rigor as some of their peers. So when you couple that with the genre that was ultimately questioned and people feared for the viability of it and feared for the message that was being delivered from it for so long, I think it just took a little bit of time to get here. So I think there were things that helped definitely helped move that shift along. You know, in the mid-2000s, we started to see Forbes do more coverage. We started to get the hip-hop cash kings and cash queens list and a lot of the things they were doing there. But still, you know, it's surface. Like, okay, Jay-Z's a billionaire. Kanye West is now labeled a billionaire or whoever else. 50 Cent had done this type of deal. But no one was really going deep about the why and the how on the regular basis. And I think now there's a bit more appetite for that. Right, right. Speaking of hip hop, um, Diddy has always been the one to say like hip hop is a lifestyle, right? Uh, He kind of has been saying it for like 20 years or so. Um, And now it's kind of getting into it's it's not just becoming a lifestyle, but it's becoming something that's actually changing the general lifestyle of Americans. And I think that's super um, relevant right now with the whole Black Lives Matter movement and how hip hop is kind of is kind of uh, affecting that movement in like a real way. I saw a little baby release a song today. Um, Literally, the 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 cover is a a picture of him at a protest. Um, I think I saw a couple of other artists um, release songs just kind of about it. And and J. Cole, I think, was the first person I'd heard specifically talk about it um, within like the the past decade or so when after Trayvon Martin passed with his song Free, where he sings about everybody wants to be free. What do you think about the, the, um, I mean, I guess this is something that has been happening in hip hop since Fight the Power, right? But what do you kind of think about this resurgence of hip hop um, in political activism um, as it pertains to Black Lives Matter and police brutality? Yeah, I think it's been it's been good to see and it's been strong to see. Um, I've been tracking a lot of the songs that have been released in the past two and a half weeks in the mm-hmm. week of George Floyd's death, and it's been uh, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of the 
A-list rappers. It's been a lot of the folks that are just a step below. And if we know that they're releasing songs, that means that there are hundreds of others from artists that are on SoundCloud and all these other places releasing songs as well that we just don't necessarily know about. So I do think that hip hop now, given that there's more dollars tied to it and more people are paying attention, a lot of that activism can have almost a little bit more of an impact. Because if we look back to Public Enemy, it was like hip hop was called Black CNN, or they specifically refer to themselves as Black CNN because there was no one that was willing to deliver that message at all. So when NWA is out there, when Public Enemy is there, they are really piercing through that awareness, right? So it took a while to be able to get over that, not necessarily for us that follow hip hop, but for the external world that is now kind of awakening to this stuff. So Mm. I think even what we've seen is a difference between how the media and how people, I guess as a culture shift, have reacted to this movement from 2014 to 2020 and how artists themselves are reacting as well to the movement. I do think that the popularity of hip-hop and just the widespread of it does make it a little bit more likely that the people that are fans of it will then be able to listen to and follow what the artists are saying. But I think you're also seeing things outside of just the music as well. Like you're seeing Killer Mike do um, rallies with Bernie Sanders, at least for the past two presidential elections. You're seeing Cardi B sit down and have interviews with Bernie Sanders on her platform as well. Um, yeah, um, Jeezy and Joe Biden, like there's a few different ones that have definitely, you know, had the artist that, or had the person that they were riding with. So I do think as hip hop artists themselves become more multi-hyphenate, they are starting to look beyond just the music in terms of the ways that they can help. I mean, I've definitely been looking at what, uh, Rock Nation has done as well in terms of Jay-Z doing a bit more of a push in terms with the Minnesota government officials to be like, hey, we need to get this in the hands of the attorney general to make sure that the case can get the appropriate justice that it needs, those types of things. So it's been interesting to see what's been happening outside of music itself that hip hop is still having a heavy hand in. Right, right. Um, I can think of specifically, speaking of Jay-Z, you know, like you said, Jay-Z and and Meek Mill going for uh, police reform and prison reform, like they're they're making a real difference in collaborating with Robert Kraft. I think it I think it is to do that. Um, yeah, it's really intense. Um, it's interesting because also I think you know, like you're saying, I just think the popularity of rappers and and hip hop culture in general now has just gotten a lot bigger. So like Public Enemy could kind of live in their own bubble, and that was kind of it, right? And you could hear people, you know, play their play their music, but it did feel like, you know, from, from my perspective of it, since I obviously wasn't alive during that time, that this was kind of a niche audience that listened to this and that, that kind of, uh, use it as a, as a rallying cry. But now, you know, the weekend had a number one album a couple of weeks ago and he's tweeting about George Floyd. It's like, it's like a lot, it's like a lot more, it, the, the audience is just so much bigger now, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's super interesting. Yeah. And the pulse on it is different too, right? It's like back in the public enemy days, they were radicalized for the stuff that they said. And then now, yeah, the weekend can talk about, you know, singing singing about blinding lights. And then two weeks later, like you said, (laughs) putting an Instagram post on blast, calling out the big three major labels and Apple music and being like, hey, y'all need to uh, pull up too. So yeah. And then they do something about it. Like I I remember he tweeted that and then I forget which one donated a hundred million dollars or committed a hundred million dollars. Order donated a (laughs) hundred. Order donated a hundred. But I think so for a few days after too. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's, and it's funny because, you know, the weekend, if the same, if he had the same type of popularity years ago, he would have had to call the executives up. Right. But like, he can just kind of put it out to the world and they see it. And it's like, Oh shit. He posted about this today on Twitter. We've seen it. We can't ignore that. You know, one of our most popular artists has said something, you know what I mean? It's just a lot more, it's a lot more direct, but I love it. I I think it's great. Yeah. No, same. I know we mentioned that there's a couple of kind of things that we just mentioned too, where there's like organizations and artists that are really coming together and leveraging their platforms to drive change. Um, are there any other like specific organizations or artists or individuals that you feel are taking very unique approaches to leveraging the influence that music and, and artists have to, to, to drive and accelerate progress? To me, that, that whole subject is just so fascinating because I feel like, like 
artists are the true tastemakers of culture and that goes beyond just what people are wearing and what people are buying so mm-hmm. yeah i think even things like on a minor level um I look at someone like Ava, du- Ava DuVernay and the work that she's been doing um, and a lot of the projects that she's been getting greenlit. Um, I do think that Netflix has her covered financially to do a lot of this <laughs> stuff. But if not, like, I think that a lot of the rappers would be willing to be like, hey, like, we got you. Like, we will, you know, support money. Like, it brings me back to the days of, like, Spike Lee trying to create Malcolm X and the industry not letting him do it. So we had to try to find his friends to go fund it so now i think we're in a slightly different space with that so so that's been interesting but yeah in terms of other artists that are doing unique things in the industry or ways that they're using their platform um i think there's a few things that are a bit more like on a um not necessarily like on a big on a big scale but we're seeing, of course, the artists that are joining protest, right? So I actually started collecting the spreadsheet where I'm like, okay, what are the main things that a lot of hip hop artists are doing? So I think the three main ways that I had started looking at it were there are artists that are um, taking some type of um, action in some way. So I would put like Jay-Z's push with the um, Minnesota officials in there. There's an artist that have joined protests themselves. So that's your Loyatis, your Miguel's, like everyone that has been posting on Instagram and pictures posted to them. And then the third that you have is the people that have donated money in some way. So Kanye West, I know, had put up a fund to help put, um, I forget which of the fallen victims, but I think it was George Floyd's kids to have a fund to go to college. So yeah, I think that it was George Floyd. Yeah. And also, that's really sad that you just said you forget which one of the victims. Just the fact that that's a reality in itself, and, yeah. and how and how you like have to think like which black person died that he did that for again? Because it seems like there was just a lot at once in May, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. it's sad to say, but it's like which hashtag? And you hate to right. say that because right. there's been too many of them. But right. but yeah, no. It, it, this is definitely a space that I've been like like more and more interested to track because I do think that the you know the opportunity is pretty wide open right if you have a platform then there's so many ways to be able to use it and do things um yeah and i think the people that have used there is even the simple things like hey i'm doing this match my donation and they tag like five other artists like leverage the power of social media and all the algorithms i know right. that uh back and, and no name have done stuff like that so it's been interesting right Speaking of things that you're interested in about interested uh, in researching, um, what do you think? I guess I guess I'm going to ask two questions here. One is, what do you think your favorite topics are to research and talk about on Trapital? And another is, what do you think are the most popular things um, that people like to to read about on Trapital? Yeah, no, two two, two different questions for <laughs> sure. <laughs> as I'm sure you all can relate, as people creating yeah. content, what the audience relates to is definitely a little bit different than what you may they have in mind. Um, I think that what the audience enjoys the most are the deep dives on one particular topic, right? And Mm -hmm. it's something that can go back from the person's origin to something that they're doing now. It doesn't need to paint an entire picture, but it just gives an overview. Like, for instance, one of the most read articles that I still have a few of them, I did a write-up last summer about death row records and why it was built to self-destruct. And a lot of that was talking about both the strengths and the weaknesses of Suge Knight and how that translated to everyone else. That still gets tons of hits every week. And that one, I think the title that I wrote an article about Tyler Perry last fall that had gotten a considerable amount of traction. Um, I wrote an article uh, a little over a year ago about Jay-Z and Damon Dash's split and the differences between ownership and partnership. So I mm-hmm. think that the times when there are the um, the topics that are dealing with one big thing that's happened or one big person or one big thing and then being able to have like a bridge. But And I think it's easy to understand why. Like people, like media and I think content in a lot of ways, like a show, not tell right? There's mm-hmm. things that you can come and say blatantly. And of course people say it, but the most valuable things is like, okay, I can see, I can sit here and follow what Damon Dash did and I can learn from this. I can 
figure out what things worked, what things didn't work. And that's where the showing comes in. And I do think in some ways that could be even more valuable about a trend that you're trying to explain than having an article that talks about that macro trend. Right. right? And, and I think that's a nuance that like people that are creating content can often lose. But yeah, those were, those are the pieces that I would say are the most popular ones, like by far, both from attraction, growth, all that perspective. I think the ones that do interest me, it depends on the, who the person is, because I've definitely challenged myself to write about people that necessarily aren't my favorite artists, but I do mm-hmm. it because I know that this is important, right? Like this is, I started Trapital as something that I wanted to be bigger than myself. So I'm not going to limit it to the artists and the people that I enjoy. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, it's inherent, right? Like I'm a human being. I know that there is easily some bias that's there that's um, focused towards particular things, but I, I definitely try to keep that overall, um, that overall focus there. I will say that the, I do enjoy those deep dives, especially if it's something that I personally am mm-hmm. inspired by what they've done and what their journey is and stuff like that. I still do enjoy the macro trend articles as well. <laughs> I probably enjoy them a little bit more than the audience does, but um, I, I still do find value in them because I think that if anything, it continues it continues to guide the research, guide the thinking, and, and so on. Right, right. That's awesome. When you think about some of the macro trends that are currently shaping like the the, the modern and future sides of the music industry like what comes to mind or what are these these issues that maybe even to 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 go a step further are like things that a lot of people might not even be super conscious and aware of but like within the next couple months or years it's like this will be laying the foundation for the new normal in music yeah i think that artists are trying i think there's a few things one i do think that streaming of course changed the industry in more ways than one one, it is the backbone of how the record labels are able to bounce back, right? And yep. because of that, I think artists are aware of that. But I think you're also seeing artists now seeing this type of bags that these streaming services <laughs> are giving to non-artists to be able to help contribute to content. Because if we go back, you know, two, three years ago, everyone knew that something would have had to like shift or change for Spotify as an organization, right? This, it wasn't quite at that Netflix place where yes, like Netflix was, well, I guess to take a step back, everyone always was wondering, okay, when was Spotify going to try to become the Netflix of audio, right? Uh I feel like that was a common thing people were saying back then, but the unit economics of music streaming just didn't allow for that. Like if you have to give up 60, 70, 80 cents for every dollar, depending on who your agreement is with, then it's just going to be hard to do that. But now that the streaming services themselves are expanding to not expanding to revenue that is not tied to the music label. So it's your Joe Rogan deals or your Joe Budden podcast deals, all those types of things. If I'm a smart artist, part of me is thinking that, okay, so I am the one that is, you know, providing the service that is essentially like subsidized for the people that are making the real bucks on this platform. And I wonder then how many artists may then consider, okay, does this mean that I need to run the money to see, okay, does it make sense if I try to go the Joe Budden route? Do I try to build up some leverage so that I could get more than the pennies on the dollars from Spotify. Like, how will that work? And I think that there's going to be even more pressure for this, just looking at how the music industry and how artists themselves are going to look back at the revenue they generated in 2020. Like, think about all the artists that were like, you know, this is going to be my year. I have the tour that I'm going to go to three different continents, 60 different shows. I'm going to make um, eight figures from this. But that's not going to happen this year, as we all know, given the pandemic and given everything that's happening. But when you then start to peel back and realize that music is no longer the lost leader for you as an artist, it is the core thing that made you money and you didn't mm-hmm. make nearly as much money as the podcasters did. How does that shift how you, how you look at things? So I'm interested to see how artists respond to that and whether there is a response in terms of leverage, in terms of how they may want to try to either come together to try to help have a sort of an active voice. And I think, secondly, 
how does that impact the type of projects or the type of deals that they want to pursue moving forward? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's really, I mean, it is really interesting. I love the, the lo- not necessarily seeing music and streaming as like the loss leader, I think, to, to the bigger picture of a music career. I mean, I've seen firsthand too. It's like I've worked with artists across a range of different genres. Like I'll work with like really big like house music DJs, like Black Coffee, who like that whole genre of music, Deep House, it's all built around live live, live events, streaming, like uh, not, not streaming, excuse me, live events. Like it has pivoted to live streaming, but historically <laughs> it's doing 200 plus shows a year um, and filling out massive rooms, warehouses, but not necessarily dominating streaming charts. And there's hundreds of artists in that, in that genre, but they don't necessarily like house music or deep house as a whole doesn't necessarily like, stream that well. Um, so thematically, like they've been hit a little bit harder, but then talking on the flip side to, to record labels and they're like it's already still business as usual right like they're still <laughs> like i mean yeah i think i was speaking to like somebody who's saying yeah maybe it seems like the the, the bubble is starting to con- like contract a little bit when it comes to some of these like super inflated like deals with artists but even then right. it's like they're still pushing and, and their core like revenue engine itself hasn't necessarily been hit nearly as hard as it has in the live events world that is really yeah. interesting and fascinating to think about yeah. Someone made the comparison. I forget who it was. I, so I can't take credit for this analogy, but someone online had made the comparison of where the streaming services are right now to where MTV was 20 years ago. So MTV, of course, the backbone of it was the artist putting all of these music videos up back then, especially all those ridiculous bunched Hype Williams music videos <laughs> back then. But the people that were making the money from MTV, it was like, jackass and johnny knoxville and all these other guys that were just like you know stapling their hands to whatever and you know just getting big contracts and although there was a it was a very different landscape the bottom ended up falling out on that business model and mtv had to shift and the music industry had to shift but there was a period where like it seemed like mtv just had like the best of both worlds with all of this right and i do think that bet at least to some extent followed a similar playbook so I hope that we're not necessarily on that level where it's like once things start to like go well, that, you know, the bottom eventually falls out. Yeah, right. Let's, let's hope not for sure. When it comes to like alternative, uh, the, the subject of like streaming and royalties and artists focusing a lot on the actual like music distribution side, like one other macro trend too, I mean, Seems like everybody loves to fantasize the idea of being an independent artist. And I think, I mean, it's still like the, the hot 100 or like the, the top tier artists, it still is very heavily dominated by major labels, even if it is these smaller management companies or indie labels that have created joint ventures with these major labels that major labels are largely doing to stay relevant. Are there other, what are interesting um are there any interesting models of progressive record labels that you're seeing, whether it is the, like maybe specific joint ventures that major labels are doing with smaller independent entities, or it's really true to form independence, but creating a model that can truly compete with these, these world-class major labels? Yeah, I think the most creative thing I've seen recently, and it's hard to call it recent because the company's been around for a decade, but Empire really solidifying and finding its home as yes if you want to be able to release a project you want to get the level of support that you would get and the expertise at a major label but without the level of commitment that they would necessarily take you could come to us and we can help you with that so i do think you know the work that they've done and and i think they've hit artists at different points in their careers like you know they had Kendrick early on in his career, right? And but then they also have Snoop Dogg later on in his career. So it's kind of this point where if you look at the artist curve, like when you're starting out, you're just trying to get things going. And then eventually, if you pop all the big artists, as you had mentioned, Sam, all are still you mostly major label artists. But then eventually, once that, you know, six album, five album deal ends up, they go back to be independent again. And then it's like, okay, Empire works within that end too. So they're kind of like bookshelved there. But I do think that that model is only going to become more and more popular over time. Um, I think there's also, um, you know, there's 
plenty of music distributors that are just getting more, you know, just getting stronger and stronger, taking some percentage off of the top um, revenue in order to get your music everywhere. Um, I think United Masters is a bit interesting in that it technically is two companies together with that and translation. And just given the expertise there from a marketing mm-hmm. and advertising perspective, it's like, okay, you already need to position yourself as a multi-hyphenate. So then how do you find the people that are the cream of the crop that are the ones that are, you know, paying the 10% to you for the service they're using and then grow with them and be able to build them to the next level. Because I think we saw with like NLE Shapa, he was with United Masters mm-hmm. um, for a minute, but then he ended up signing that joint venture deal with Warner. I think that's a pretty logical progression. It happened very quickly, but things happen quickly in the industry right now. So I think that we'll start to see more optionality like that. But yeah, from the major label side, at least I have yet to see, you know, the big players do things. But of course, with all the imprints and the folks under them, I think there is a little bit more um, leeway. But I think we should probably and hopefully see more flexibility uh, coming soon. Yeah. When you so, mentioned... Um, do you, ahead, do you think like like DSPs? I mean, you alluded to like Netflix, and if you look at like Netflix and their evolution, they've largely gone to. I mean, they're 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 it's a land grab for market share for Netflix when it comes right now yeah. from a production studio standpoint. Not just being this destination where people can go to consume content, but they're actually like competing um, with all these other major production houses. Like a lot of the best shows these days are like produce it in Netflix original series and Netflix original films. Like I know there's been like mumblings around that stuff. I mean, I mean, when does that shift happen in DSPs? Like if, a, if, if Spotify truly has as much like, like owns distribution and the relationship with the, the customers more so than any kind of distributor. I mean, if, if you were to look at them now, like a record store, like a modern day record store, like they can literally like inject it into their algorithmic playlist. They have editorial playlists with hundreds of millions of listeners. Like, at what point, I mean, are you seeing this shift happen? And if not, like, do you think it's just a matter of time before, like, Spotify has their own label arm? I know there's been some, like, feelings behind the scenes and it's happening-ish in small pockets, but what's your take? I, uh, if you asked me a year ago, I would have said, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. If you asked me two years ago, I would have said, I think it's going to happen. And it's funny just (laughs) given like how much it shifts because, I mean, if we go back four years ago, this was the wave, right? Like everyone was getting exclusive, whether it was Jay-Z and Beyonce on Tidal or Chance and Drake on Apple Music. But then like when Frank Ocean did Blonde and he put it out as exclusive, uh, Universal didn't see it coming because he had dropped that album Endless a day before day before that endless album was the end of completing his record label deal. And that was essentially his throwaway album. And the next day he releases his real album and universal gets pissed. Universal says, we're not doing this anymore. And it essentially, at least temporarily put, you know, a knife at, into that movement. And then things just kind of halted for a minute, but the streaming services had much less power back then. Right. I would need to quote to see how many it is, but Spotify maybe had, what, a third of the subscribers, maybe half of what they do right now. And the spot and the non-music revenue wasn't as developed. So I do think that naturally what happens, right, as you grow and you're able to gain more money and leverage outside of the major label-backed revenue, you become more powerful. So therefore, mm. you can start to negotiate more and you don't have to necessarily give up as many points on each contract as you do with the majors granted i know everyone has revenue has ownership stakes in each other so there is at least some vested interest between let's say a spotify and a universal music group but over time yeah i think in the back of my mind i'm like okay well when is this going to happen again eventually because now you're seeing things happen little in in little spurts right like so Drake may have an exclusive deal for additional content or radio with a Pandora or something like that. Or so-and-so may have a deal with Apple to do Beats One or to have their radio show there. So they're getting exclusive deals with artists for pretty much everything that they can except for the actual music. But it's only a matter of time before that happens. And 
I think as we saw with Netflix, it's like all of a sudden, you know, the only Netflix shows are like House of Cards and like Lily Hammer. And then, <laughs> you know, 18 months later, they have like everything, right? Right. So I, I feel like... It, I don't know if it would be as drastic in with with the with with audio specifically, but I mean, I w- I just wouldn't be surprised because I think this is business, and anytime someone gains more power, they're going to try to do things that may have not worked four, five, six years ago, but they could now work. Right. Yeah. I also think that um, just at least in my opinion, as a consumer, video content is just a little bit different in just terms of how excited I am to hear it. The the immediacy that I want to hear music versus the immediacy that I want to see videos or, or TV shows. Like I think when, you know, when, when, when albums come out and when Music Friday comes out, I'm on Spotify immediately to listen to it, to check it out. Or, you know, I'm, I'm on, you know, Apple Music to listen to whatever album came out most recently. And I think for TV shows, for some reason, I'm like, Oh, this so and so is back on Netflix. I have to find some time to watch that. And it's and it's not and it's not as immediate as music is. And I think that may be what makes it a little bit more difficult to do in terms of like what Netflix is doing. Because um I don't think people are like super accustomed to subscribing to more than one channel for music i I think it's it'll i think it'll be a long history coming from people like stealing and pirating music like that was the immediate immediate it's like you could go on limewire and get whatever you want as soon as it came out a lot of the times before it came out so i think we're like slowly you know becoming accustomed to waiting for things and then once we become more accustomed to that then maybe we'll be more accustomed to exclusives and that sort of thing but i think we're coming from a history of i want my music and i want it now and i think that's a little bit different than than, it's than in, uh, what netflix a, is doing interesting point but isn't like the massive majority like the, the majority and the majority of like revenue generated off royalties and, and music off catalog and old music so by like from a strictly like quantifiable standpoint i mean even then it's like still it's it's, it's very like very similar in that regard right yeah, I would say so. Because, yeah, I mean, if you look at spot, like for, I guess, yeah, if you make the comparison, like with Netflix, as for all the new content that they're doing, the two biggest things they had were like The Office and Friends, right? Mm-hmm. That's essentially their back catalog. So, I mean, if you look at music as well, yeah, I think with that comparison, the stuff that does get the most listens, yeah, probably is a lot of that evergreen, like, I guess more so I call it evergreen content for, yeah. <laughs> for, for what do you call it for like Netflix, but for yeah. music, your classics, right? The, the stuff that people right. are going back to kind of you know, whether you're in hip hop or not. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting to see. I mean, I think it's, uh, even when you just look at like analogous industries, I was having a conversation with uh, a friend that um, built up a really cool company with uh, the author Tucker Max called scripted. And, um, they, they have authors write books. It's like, it used to be called book in a box because you'd be a successful entrepreneur. You want to write a book. And uh, you, over the course of like five to seven hours of interviewing, they download and then they'd have these world-class writers. I mean, it was co-founded with Tucker Max, dope company. And then as I was talking with him and talking about like book publisher deals and prior to focusing a lot on music marketing was very much focused on like entrepreneurial marketing and helped like launch and like incredible books. And like book publishers, it's the same thing too. And like for me as, as a marketer, like this, the similarity I would see and is that it's like, uh, like record labels are still relatively narrowly incentivized around the bigger picture. And I think from a marketing mm-hmm. standpoint, that what I'm often focusing on when, when looking at marketing artists is like this holistic marketing thing. It's like, yes, we need to build a general community around you as an artist. We can't just put all of our marketing focus and community building focus towards activating your audience around a specific release. If you look at, at how record label marketing teams um, market their artists, it's like, yeah, there's a release. Let's run a TikTok campaign or let's run a massive ad campaign to promote this individual release. And they'll often kind of put the burden of just this ongoing general community, community development on the backs of the artists. And then in, in book publishing, it's the same thing. Like a, 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 an entrepreneur isn't oftentimes, I mean, sometimes they they push out their book, but oftentimes it comes back through speaking engagements or growing their their business. So there's all these other revenue streams that like book publishers aren't getting. So one issue that I see in the music industry is this fragmentation of interests and the fact that like, that's why I love the model of like joint venture record label management companies because you're able to better 
you'll be able to strike on the synergy of being able to invest in the full picture and, and see the returns rather than just these entities that are narrowly getting a slice of the pie. Same thing goes for like a booking agency. It's like they're not going to do anything and invest their efforts and activities that are going to do more than just like generate more bookings. When you're coming, I, mean, I, I do think though management, not to interrupt you, but I do think though management and collaborating with a record label is different than a booking agency because I do think the power, at least in my opinion, one of the most important things that you can do for an artist is book them and book them in great positions and great shows. I think that by itself sometimes can be equally as important, if not more important than who's your manager or who's your label or the energy that they even have together. You know, so like if you have a really good opening slot, who care and 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 you're and you know or on a, on a, on a high profile tour with who knows Bruno Mars or something like that. And your booking agent got that all they had to do was bring it to the manager and the manager had to decide with the artist, yes or no. Right. But that could change their lives and their career a little bit more than whatever album they just put out. You know what I mean? Um, I also think that the, just the work and the scope of what managers do can overlap with a record label a lot easier than, than a booking agent can. Um, so I guess to I guess Sam I guess um, I have a question for you now is what do you what do you, what would you see and I guess this is for you too Dan if if a booking agency or a company that was you know super niche kind of like that where they only did bookings what what other industry or or or, or uh, field in in the music industry could you see a booking agent potentially collaborating with what other field could I see a booking agent right so you so you brought up management record label. And I do think there's a lot of overlap there. Right. And yeah. then for, for booking agent, what, what scenario do you think that those two things could like mesh a little bit more? I mean, management can kind of mesh with a lot of things. I, no, guess, I, mean, I just think it comes down to like incentive, like incentivization. And I feel like if you are random metaphor that comes, you're not even going to do it. Stupid metaphor. <laughs> Disregard that. <laughs> I, I will but say booking agents a little slice of the pie. It's like you want to, be the rising tide that lifts all the ships, not like uh-huh. trying to catch one wave. And if you think about how it's like fragmented, that's a slightly better metaphor than what I was in my head. But generally speaking, <laughs> from a collaboration standpoint, I, I think um, you, you just need to holistically think about what are all the different elements in the, the development life cycle of an artist. And to answer your question, it'd be every single entity involved in that process. Yeah, um, because I do think that one of the frustrating things about music right now that is definitely different than it was a few years back, you know, before the streaming era is how quickly imperishable the content can seem, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've had this conversation with a few people, but Drake dropped that Dark Lane demo tapes mixtape, what, six weeks ago at this point? Mm-hmm. Like maybe seven? I don't know when you're going to air this. So, you know, I may be dating it, but he dropped it at, you know, within the past two months and it is already out of the conversation, like mm. gone. Granted, yes, there are bigger, more important things that are happening in the world right now. But even if that weren't happening, like let's say even if there was no pandemic, even if there was no uprising about racial injustice, we like it would have been out of the, you know, uh, what do you call it? it? Would have been out of the media life cycle at this point. And for, you know, arguably the biggest artist in the world, even though it is just a mixtape, like that thing doesn't necessarily happen. It does, or rather it, didn't happen, you know, six, seven years ago when Drake was releasing, um, like, if you're reading this, it's too late or what a time to be alive in in, in those mixtapes. So I do think it puts more pressure, to your point, Sam, it puts more pressure on people to think about the big picture, right? We can't necessarily put everything into these albums the same way. Yes, it's great if you could put out that um, To Pimp a Butterfly or My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy opus that's going to you know, stand the test of time, but how are you going to keep things fresh? And I think you're seeing artists do a few things. You can take the baby's route and release an album every four months and, you know, at least keep the pressure hot as long as you can and just taking advantage of the ease it is to create more music. You can take a bit more of the make the stallion route, which is what she's doing now, which is, you know, putting out things every little bit, but still making sure that you are present in the media and in the landscape in some way so that your opportunities still come because you are present, you are there and available. And that's where I do think that the shift from like being a rapper to being this multi-hyphenate matters because it can just be something as simple as a 
viral TikTok clip or something you say on Twitter that resonates with a lot of people that keeps you in the public consciousness and makes it mm-hmm. more likely that people are going to purchase your merch or people are going to follow you and you're going to increase your funnel so that when it comes time for you to sell your goods and sell those things, you still have an engaged audience that's willing to uh, buy and support. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a fantastic point. I mean, when it comes to the, you had like what, when you mentioned like Meg Thee Stallion, how she is able to stay present in the media. And then when, when it comes, I mean, and you too, as, as part of the media, if you will, but I feel like this kind of new wave of media, very much like the indie version of your own media, you built your own community, a paid community at that for certain members. I think uh, if you look over the past 15 years, where I mean, not, I mean, there's been tons of massive changes, but in regards to like music media, like you've seen the, the slight fall in the prevalence of like major distribution because people like social media started to come up and people, I mean, media itself became a little bit more democratized. So it wasn't just these massive like corporate conglomerates that were spinning off new brands to to own the conversation and kind of control the narrative and, and break artists. So then social media came up, blogs came up. There was this big wave of blogs. Um, I think social media continued to evolve. Blogs came slightly irrelevant and then became the, the merit and value of like the influencer and like influencers across Instagram podcasts, right. And podcast media came to play. Like now it seems like, where, where do you see the media landscape continuing to change? I feel like you are very much kind of part of this new wave, this new this new force. Um, I don't think influencers are necessarily going anywhere, but that space does seem very saturated, and it's hard to find true merit and quality amidst the sea of so much fake news. <laughs> so, like, when, when you think, how do you see the, the media landscape continue to evolve, and who do you think will, if you look over the course of the next five and ten years where do you see power shifting yeah i i think i think i see a few things one there have been companies that have been able to i think stand the test of time and do it pretty well especially on a hip-hop perspective like i think one of the ones that's done the best job of this honestly is complex so they started almost 20 years ago and it was completely different right this was like print this was the magazine that went everywhere and in some ways you know, a little bit harder to distinguish from a lot of the others and didn't really have the same stamp of approval that I would say that a vibe or XXL did, especially like in the mid 2000s. But I think what helped Complex was the insights to be able to see where things were tracking and to be able to pivot and not necessarily be married to the medium. And I think that is one of the things that a lot of hip hop and a lot of music outlets have struggled with from the 90s from the 2000s and even to a, you know some extent the 2010s by not being focused on a particular medium you were able to evolve so i think the first thing that complex did was say okay shift to this wave of blogs so like when the blog era was at its peak you know late 2000s early 2010s they were able to acquire a lot of those blogs that had a pretty strong presence those blogs were then acquired into their complex network and then that kind of became the wave and the mo for them to be able to find talent then to essentially be able to acquire the talent that had got their um that had got their organic audience through the places they got it. And then I think you saw in the 2020s, or not the 2020s, in the 2010s, shifting and following where things were from a social media perspective. I mean, I think Complex um, is probably one of the most active, whether it is sharing highlights from a sports game, talking about something relevant that's happening in pop culture or related to its target demo, and now has really become the home for that 18 to 26 year old. Um, group, primarily male, that they own. I've called it collectively like the Travis Scott demographic. Like that's (laughs) complex. Like the overlap is pretty strong. And I think they've done that. So I think they've done that pretty well. So I think the outlets that can not necessarily connect themselves to the medium will be strongest. And I think in terms of myself, yeah, you know, I definitely got my name out there and is able to get trapitals to spread because of my own distribution through email. As mm-hmm. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, 
email kind of saw this resurgence and a lot of people started getting newsletters and a lot of people started creating them. Some of them just free, some of them um, paid in communities such as mine. So I think there was a bit of a benefit there of like people being like, okay, what's this wave? What's happening? Like, and then who are the music newsletters? And I think I benefited from people often pointing to mine as one of them. So Mm -hmm. I do think that, but even with me, you know, I'm keeping up to date on where things are happening as well. Like if everyone is now doing something, right? Like what's the old like thing? If everyone's now doing something, you need to always be considering what that next move may be. Mm-hmm. But that honestly is, who knows? But understanding where are things going from a podcasting perspective, where are things going from a social media perspective? Like for instance, Snapchat just did this big presentation about how successful things have been for them and how they have, you know, that younger audience and demographic pretty strong as well. And I think that could be a blind spot for a lot of people in the music industry that have been so focused on developing the Instagram strategy and kind of overlooked Snap for a bit and then now shifted to TikTok. So I think being able to not just pivot well, but being able to understand where things are. And I think, mm-hmm. for, yeah, I, th- I think for the, for the smaller indie folks, um, realize that, yeah, you know, the internet is a pretty big place. And if you can keep your costs down and keep things manageable and you understand who your audience is, you can run a successful, profitable organization that does the things that you want to do and makes the impact without needing to, you know, try to get to that next level. Um, and I guess by that next level, not necessarily from an ambitious perspective of not wanting this to grow and grow because I do, but not needing to have a staff of a hundred or not needing to have a payroll of whoever in order to make this happen. And I do think that that's one of the benefits that comes from this. Um, there has been a lot of talk as well. I think people have often wondered like, okay, well, there's this unbundling that's essentially happening where not just folks like me that have kind of started their organizations on the ground up, but there's also people that were journalists from the New York Times or the Atlantic that were reputable, but then are now going on Substack and launching their own newsletter, right? Right. So it's a little bit of a different type of gain. So it's like, now that's essentially the unbundling, but then some of those same folks are starting to rebundle. And I do think that there's good in that, right? Like this is now, it's a good time for an individual creator to leverage the power of the internet and be able to put your name out there. But with that said, because everyone's kind of doing something and because the barrier to entry is the lowest that, you know, frankly, it's been in a long time, it could be harder to stand out. You need to do more work in order to make sure that you are attracting the audience. And I think that comes from having that same strategic discipline. And I think that's required regardless of how easy it is to start something today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dan, man, I want to thank you for virtually coming out to the Music Business Podcast. Um, Sam and I, were super excited to have you on. We hope you had a good time. I think our conversation flowed very well. Um, I always tell people that, you know, we have questions, but whether or not we stick to them is kind of uh, more how more so how conversational things went. And we only had to ask a few because we just kind of like kept, kept the ball rolling. So I thought that was really great. Um, so, yeah, man, appreciate you. No, thank you both, man. This was fun. This was fun. Like I said, man, I think what y'all are doing is great as well. You know, have some great guests on there. You both know your stuff. I'm excited to follow along as a fan too. Awesome, bro. Dang, yo. Founder of uh, Trapital just said we know our stuff, Sam. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> you made it, I'm going right. to take Sam that to heart, bro. Podcast, so, yeah. <laughs> play that clip every time I'm insecure about myself. Drop the mic. You're good. Well, on that note, actually, we are out. Great episode, man. Great episode. You know, like I said in the intro, it's always great to kind of pick the brain of an analyst because obviously me and you have opinions of we ain't shit. So, you know, hearing somebody that, you know, don't get in your feelings, don't get in your feelings. I was playing. Yeah, I was speak, playing. But... Speak for yourself, boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, hearing somebody that spends, you know, all day studying the industry and the moves and stuff, it's always so refreshing to speak to them. You know, I check Feedly every day to make sure that I have a, a constant feed of, 
of music industry news, but that's all in Dan's brain. And it's not all in his brain, just in his brain, it's, it's already analyzed. So by the time we speak to him, we're not only learning about these updates, but we're learning about an interesting perspective of somebody who's kind of seen an industry grow to this point. So I thought that was super dope. Um, it's also really interesting to me that he grew a journalism startup in San Francisco. Um, obviously, when people think about hip hop culture, there's obviously a vibrant culture in San Francisco, but in terms of just making a startup and him being able to provide for himself off of a, off of a journalism startup, I think it's super cool. Um, and I really think the conversation that we had about DSPs and, and how they can kind of turn themselves into the new Netflix if they do things right, whether that, you know, in terms of exclusives and that sort of thing and how DSPs can actually turn themselves into, uh, you know, a, a money printer like Netflix, essentially. So um, I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it was great. What'd you think, Sam? Yeah, I thought it was incredible, man. I, I really enjoyed being able to, he's obviously smart, knows his stuff. I, I love how he's been able to really deconstruct and provide very thoughtful, thorough analysis around the business of hip hop too, which has always just really excited me. I mean, I'm a fan on one side, but a lot of the, my fandom goes beyond just the music and goes to the respect that I have for uh, the, the, the business men and women that really run this this whole industry. So I think his, his thoughtfulness and his analysis as to how he goes about deconstructing it all super valuable. And it was fun to just kind of like riff on different ideas and perspectives and different topics. So really enjoyed it. Um, if you haven't already, please be sure to go to trapital.co to sign up for his newsletter. And uh, if you haven't already, we're super grateful for your support. If you could just go to the Apple, iTunes, wherever you're listening to this podcast, leave a review. Helps us make sure we're able to continue pressing into the topics you care about and reach more people. So we appreciate y'all greatly. And we'll be back next week. Peace. See you guys.